This is Show Up as a Leader, a show from People Forward Network, helping you maximize your positive impact on the world by becoming your best, fully authentic self. All right, strap on your bootstraps. You are going to love this conversation that I had with Scott Ritzheimer. He is a scale architect. He founded Scale Architects to help businesses across the country identify the right growth strategies and find the right guys to get them on the fast track to predictable success. And our conversation today is all about looking at very specific leadership styles and how we all have them and what we can do to minimize our frustrations, whether it's in a marriage or on a team or in an organization as a whole. And I swear we could have talked forever. Um, He shares some really wonderful personal things at the end of our conversation. And bonus, if you go to the episode page, there is a link that he is providing where you can take his assessment for free to learn which leadership style you are. So you'll have to listen to the episode to learn more about that. So make sure to check out the episode page as well and enjoy. All right, Scott, I'm super excited to talk to you because obviously this podcast is all things leadership. And so I want to dive right in and start talking about what you've learned about how our leadership style can both create but also inhibit growth. Rosie, thanks so much for having me here. I'm uh, so excited about this conversation. I think this is probably one of the funnest things I get to do is talk with folks like you. So I appreciate it. It'll be a lot of fun. And leadership styles. I mean, does it get any better? And so leadership styles means a lot of different things to a lot of people. In my world, it means something very specific. And we've defined four different leadership styles that show up, particularly in the workplace, but in life in general. There's lots of different great systems out there. I've used a ton of them. They're wonderful. What's a little bit different and what I hope to unpack with you today about the way that we approach leadership styles is how those leadership styles show up over the course of an organization, department, or team over time. Because sometimes those leadership styles are the man or woman for the moment, right? Other times when you show up in that natural style, it may not be what the team needs at that time. And so the reason that's important is a lot of conflict shows up in teams. A lot of conflict shows up just within people when they're showing up in a strength that is authentic and true to themselves, but it's not the right thing for the right moment. And when we're working in a team environment, we have to really deal with, am I doing what's best for the team or am I doing what's best for me? That's not even a selfish thing. This is maybe an authentic thing. And so how do we authentically show up in a team environment when our strength isn't appropriate for the moment? A couple of things that brings up for me is, I don't know if you're familiar with the Arbinger Institute, but we use a lot of their stuff in our work of moving from an inward mindset where it's all about me to an outward. And so really what you're describing is being able to, when we look at our leadership style, adapt, not to be phony, but to go, oh, I'm looking at these stakeholders around me. And I see them as a human being that has their own needs, objectives, and challenges. And my job to be effective and have the impact I want to have is to look at how can I adjust my efforts to be more helpful, which means I might have to shift my leadership style. Like we can't just blanket it. We have to get over this that, oh, I'm somehow being fake or fraud if I shift my style or if I look at the, the room because, no, you're being rigid and not being helpful if you can't look beyond you to see what does the team, this other person, the organization need from you right now to be able to have the impact you want to have. That's exactly it. And one of the things that we talk about is moving from your style owning you 
to you owning your style. Ah, love that. Right. And, and it's a huge difference. And, and for a lot of us, when we're on autopilot, we're not calling the shots. It's that automatic default pattern that whatever it is we do, we do. And when that aligns with what we're supposed to be doing, it works wonders, which is great because it gives us the success that we've worked hard for and, and earned. But it's also really challenging because it tricks us into thinking that it's right more often than it is. So before I go too far, further down, I'm going to tie that back in. But what I'd love to do is just introduce each of the styles real quickly so that people can kind of grab hold of and start getting a sense of what am I? So very first one is a visionary leader. These are the folks that we most typically recognize as leaders. Uh, a, a bit of the tragedy in that is we think that other people aren't leaders because they don't have this style. That's not true. But visionary leaders, they're the ones up front. They're the idea people. I work with a lot of entrepreneurs, vast majority of entrepreneurs that reach some degree of success have a lot of visionary style. They have a very high squirrel factor. You know, <laughs> if, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Up. There's this little dog for anyone who hasn't seen the movie. It's a Pixar movie. It's wonderful. You will cry. I, I don't cry often, but I always cry when I watch that movie. But we're not here to cry. We're here to talk about Doug. Doug is this little side character, and he's a dog who has a collar that allows him to talk. And he wants desperately to be part of what everybody is doing. He, he just wants to be in, but he, for the life of him, cannot resist a squirrel, and he's up a tree. And then a, a scene later, you see him come wandering back in. He's like, what I miss? You know, what I miss? And and he's with everybody, and he's squirrel. He's up off in He's up another tree. And that's what visionaries are like, particularly in a team environment. They're just constantly assessing what could be and what should be. It's absolutely a superpower, but in a team environment, it can be really challenging because it's like, no squirrels, this is what we're doing, stay here. And so our visionaries, they're a lot of fun. Our teams need them. They're messy, they're chaotic, and they're wonderful. I thoroughly enjoy working with them. Well, yeah, and I think that there's a time and place right in a business and team where we need to be in ideation mode. We need to be taking a step back, having that big picture, looking at what's possible. But yeah, there's a time and place where, okay, like ideation is over. We now need to vet stuff. We now need to go to activation. We now need to move to implementation. And that can take us off course. That can be distracting. So it's knowing kind of when to bring that visionary strength to the table and when it's not helpful in, in that moment. And one of the things that they do exceptionally well is they tend to have a very, very high degree of resilience. I have a, an eight-year-old who has a lot of energy at home. And so we, as an exercise of kind of energy management, we got him one of those uh, blow-up things that, that he can whack. Oh, yeah. And the they're bottom-weighted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he can pound on it. He can jump on it. And what does it do every single time? It pops right back up. And that's what visionaries are like. They can take just a beating. They can get it wrong 99 times, knowing that if they can just get the one time right, they'll do it. And one of the things that we see is that you know about eight out of 10 brand new organizations fail. They fail to ever really get off the ground to become sustainable. And one of the primary reasons for that is that they don't have a visionary. And so in all of their messiness and all of their, you know, driving the other styles crazy from time to time, they're absolutely essential for getting things off the ground. They're exceptional at it. When you said that, what it made me think about is, and I think about our own organization over the course of the last couple of years as this pandemic just doesn't seem to end. But don't you think that like during the pandemic was really an opportunity for visionaries who maybe have been lying dormant, if you will, within teams and organizations, but without that without that vision of being able to see beyond this is how we do things and be able to completely like blow things up and reset and have a blank canvas, like disruptive stuff that goes on in our world, like a pandemic, 
visionaries are essential to help navigate through that. Yeah, absolutely. And to see beyond it is, is really the key phrase in there. You know, if you're starting a business uh, and you're not a visionary, go find one, partner up with them. You will be much happier that you did. Uh, if you have a bigger organization, you're trying to get a new product off the ground, give it to a visionary. Give them some room, lengthen out their leash a little bit and just watch them work. It's marvelous. If your organization is getting a little tired, right? You've lost your edge. You're starting to get left behind in a market. Make sure you've got visionaries on staff because I'll be willing to bet you've lost a couple lately and that's what got you to that point. So visionaries, awesome. But in and of themselves, they don't have the full recipe. And what you'll find very quickly is that they love to start things, but in the wake of any great visionary is just a trail of unfinished projects. They get bored with the implementation. They don't have the tenacity to get across the finish line. But if they can partner with other people who have that, right, golden. And that's our next leadership style is they embody that getting the ball across the finish line. We call them the operator. And the motto of a great operator is tell me what to do and don't watch. It, it won't be pretty. It, it won't probably be the way that you wanted it done, but it will be done. Operators are in many ways the, the kind of symbiotic twin of the visionary. That visionary operator combination is what gets things started and finished. And they do that exceptionally well. You see this pattern happen all over the place. It's enfranchised in a lot of the different business models that are out there. But I mean, you name your great organization and somewhere behind the scenes, there was a brilliant operator that helped get that thing up off the ground. You know, a lot of CEOs are changing their titles to chief visionary, because if you really think about that function, and I think about some of the clients that we've worked with where the CEO is also operating as the COO, which is a mistake. Or when they're looking at succession planning, they naturally assume that the COO, and it's like they're a very different skill set. Like they both have their value, but that, that's not the same. And I know that people who are strong in both visionaries and operators, but they can't do it all. So yeah, you might have that, let's just say the founder of an organization or that maybe operates in both, but they're going to burn themselves out those folks who have that visionary and operator thing, those are the folks that tend to get organizations off the ground the fastest, right? Because they've just got that internal recipe nailed down. What happens is that they very quickly get stuck in something that we call the artisan trap. An example we use is there's a gentleman in the UK who creates custom guitars and he'll build two or three guitars a year. That's all that he does. And so he'll sell like crazy, make these beautiful, wonderful guitars, and then he'll disappear for about six months and then realize, oh, shoot, you know, I got the bills to pay. And he'll come back and he'll do it again. And what happens with those visionary operator combos is they get stuck in a sell and do loop, right? Because you can only be doing one of those at a time. Uh, that's true for entrepreneurs. It's true for folks that are starting things inside of organizations because you may not be fighting for a market or cash, but you are fighting for support within the organization. And so if you're constantly out there trying to garner the support, get the feedback, generate the sales, whatever, you've got to have someone else who can pick up where you're leaving off and make it happen. Uh, second part, succession planning is massive. So one of the things that happens for organizations as they progress, they start off in this kind of early struggle phase. They move to a period that's pretty fun, right? It's just organic growth that's working. And then what ends up happening a lot of times is they'll bump into this challenge that I call second stage growth. And uh, we have a name for it. We call it whitewater. And it's just this time when what we were doing wasn't 
it's not working as well as it used to. We grew by adding sales reps and we, you know, we need another million, two million, three million dollars. We add a sales rep and we've got another million, two million, three million dollars. And we just kind of, we sell it and then we figure out how to do it. That works for a while. It's a great method, but then it starts to falter. And what needs to happen is you need to add systems and processes. If you can do that, if you can balance out that visionariness, that operatorness, have an idea, get stuff done, and then process it, that's what allows an organization to really scale, to really achieve predictable success. And then what tends to happen is there's a, a lengthy period that you can run in predictable success. For many, it's almost indefinite. But one of the key triggering events that kicks people out of that scalability period and into a stage that we call treadmill is that they go through a succession, but they don't replace the visionary. They replace the CEO, but they don't replace the visionary. And Simon Sinek says it better than anybody that I've, I've heard. I think it's in the infinite game, but he says the role of a CEO, and he calls it the chief vision officer, like you were saying, is to look up and out. The role of a COO is to look down and in. One of those is not better than the other. Both are essential, but being skilled at one of those in no way, shape or form makes you skilled at another. And it's, it's significant because if your organization falls into treadmill, that's where you start to lose that competitive edge. When Microsoft shifted from Bill Gates to Steve Ballmer, you start to lose some of that visionariness as an organization. The ethos of the organization starts to change. And if you don't catch it, then what happens is the organization falls into the big rut. And that's a stage that you just you can't get out of. And what it also is bringing up for me is it's not just at the organizational level, because I'm thinking about several of the organizations that I work with and really at the team level. So they might have a manager or director or a VP or who is the leader of that team who has that visionary skill, right? Or they have the visionary and the operators. And maybe they were a smaller team or a smaller function within the organization. And now the organization is wanting more of them, whatever it is that they provide to the organization or to their customers. And so scalability internally, really what I see is the team level as well. If teams are going to scale, if teams are going to re-energize and reinvent, that you need to have this not just at the big organizational level, but it really, it goes the same at the team level too. Any group of two or more. I actually did a podcast like this on, on how these stages and styles apply to marriages. Any group <laughs> of two or more. And, and it's scary consistent. So if we kind of walk our timeline, we've got our, our visionary who's kind of, let's get this thing going, right? And then they go get their operator. And so those two together, some people will call it like rocket fuel, right? It's like that fire and air, you know, it's just, it, it's happening. And those two together can create a significant amount of success in the early stages. But once they bump into that whitewater period, once they reach a level of complexity inside the organization that's causing them to cause problems, that's when the third style needs to really come forward. Before I introduce what it is, I, I just want to set it up. It is absolutely counter, perpendicular to the way that visionaries and operators lead. Visionaries and operators are all about doing the right thing. But this third leadership style is about doing the thing right. So let's say you have a visionary who's got their high squirrel factor. You've got your operator who's, don't tell me what to do or how to do it. Just tell me what you need and stay out of my way. How effective are those two at looking at how an organization is supposed to function and creating processes for that to happen and adhering to them? Not very. Not very, right? They've succeeded to this point by not having too many processes. In fact, many of them have left bigger organizations that were just crazy processed. That's the reason that they left. 
And now they're recognizing, hey, we actually need some processes. What do we do with this? And that's where the third leadership style comes in. And they are a processor. That, that is what they do. It's how they think. It's how they're wired. They see the world through a lens of system and process. And because of that, they're constantly focusing on doing the thing right. And that creates all kinds of challenges. So one of the things that happens is just the rate, the kind of pace of, of each of the individuals, right? So visionaries, I want to be careful with this because it's not easier to come up with ideas, but it is faster. You can come up with about a thousand ideas for any one that someone could actually go out and do. And so what you tend to see is the visionaries recognize that and they trim it all the way down as much as they possibly can. You know, it's like, if you knew the number of ideas going through my mind right now, your head would explode. That's what they're thinking. Even the best of visionaries that are trimming off as much of the fluff as they possibly can are still coming up with about seven ideas for any one that an operator could execute on. And our operators, they're pretty good at getting stuff done. They can get just an enormous amount of work done. And so when you compare them to our processors who are highly detail oriented, they're getting about seven times as much done as operators as a processor could. Example, visionary comes in, cash is a little low and say, hey, we need to stir up some accounts receivables. Check the list, call them, see what you can stir up. Operator says, all right, got it, done. They go, they find a list that's buried somewhere on their desk. You know, it's three months old, but it's good enough. You know, by the end of the day, they've made 50, 100 calls and they've stirred up cash and we're good to go. Let's move on. What happens when the visionary goes to our new CFO who's in charge of accounts receivable and says, hey, we're a little low on cash. I'd love for you to go check the accounts receivable, stir up a little bit and see what you can bring in. What are they going to do? The CFO is like, I'm not a salesperson. Yeah, it's like, you know, they're going to be like, you know, when do you want this due by? And who do you want me to call specifically? Uh, is there a minimum threshold for the call? What, what report period do I want to run? And there's just this, this exquisite but excruciating level of detail. So what's happened at the end of the day? Uh, the processors asked a dozen questions and the operators made a dozen calls. Now, it's not that processors are slow or lazy or anything like that. They can be perceived that way. It's that the level of precision with which they function demands so many more steps be taken to complete the same task. But you can't have sustainability and scalability. Let's just say leader of a team, you know, might be the visionary and then operators might be whatever they're doing, whether they're sales reps or whether they're consultants or whatever it might be. And to me, what comes up probably because I'm married to a project manager, but the processors are project managers, right? We need to know the deadlines and the deliverables and we need to know the business requirements because without it, then when someone randomly comes and says, I need X, Y, Z data, or how do you know this? Or how do you know what the next step is? You're guessing or you're throwing darts at a wall versus, no, I'm actually basing it on what makes sense and what's feasible. Yeah. And it's fascinating. So what ends up happening is you get a pretty big showdown between the visionary style, right? They're moving seven times as fast as an operator who's moving seven times as fast as a processor, right? That's a 50x basically difference between those two. And you've got the visionary who is the most up and out. You've got the processor who's the most down and in. You have visionaries who pride themselves, maybe even need to pursue risk, to get sharp. Processors are by nature and by gift risk averse. They keep us from taking the one bite too many. They keep us from going that one step too far. They, they give us the structure to actually be flexible at scale. And you nailed it. That's the difference is to achieve any kind of scale 
for any type of sustainable duration is going to require that you bring all three visionaries, operators, processors, and synergists together. The other analogy or metaphor that came to mind is in, in our first book, we describe building a thriving culture at work and we use a metaphor of building a house and the, the different steps and like the blueprint. Transformation point number four, we call them transformation points, but is framing the house. And right, it's you have to have enough structure in place to kind of make this stuff strong, stable, right? And so when you're talking about processors, and you, it's really about the framing the house, like how how long is that house going to stand? And when tornadoes and mother nature and other things come through, you have to have some of the structure or don't go one too far. Like if this wall isn't sound, it's going to collapse. So it's like the frame of that house, if you will. And in many ways, what happens is almost more significant than that in that whitewater period when processors really come in is we build a new house. We've been able to build to like one, two, three, fours without a basement, you know, because we're not going to dig down. We're building up. Why would we ever dig down? Well, have you ever seen a skyscraper be built? It's like months and months and months of going down. You got to go down to go up. I love that analogy, that metaphor. That makes so much sense. My organization is called Scale Architects, and that's, that's where we get the name from it. So we help folks to wrestle down these challenges and differences and put together strategies that help them scale. So it's a lot of fun. Uh, so our visionary operator and processor. So one of the, the ways that these three show up, together we call them, they're an unstable triad, right? Like they're just prone to all sorts of dysfunction, actually. Visionaries are constantly writing emails at two in the morning. And then they'll, they'll fly into the office unannounced. And then what's happening, the processor's buried in some report somewhere. Operator has escaped the office because they're trying to get something done. No one's there to grab hold of the squirrels that the visionary has from the, the conference that they were just at last week. And so they're furious. Like, what do I pay these people for? It's just the way that we show up for work, right? It just drives each other crazy. And so what you'll find is that VOP, Visionary Operator Processor Teams, they just can't sustain any level of teamwork without the fourth style, which is the synergist. And that synergist is the relational glue that holds it all together. They're the ones who really bring the who to the equation. And the synergist is typically where visionary operator and processor, we tend to be born with one, two, or three of those in a combination. The synergist is typically a learned style. Now, now, we use all kinds of language for that EQ, self-awareness, teamwork, you know, it will be bundled on that. But it's basically what you described earlier of being able to recognize your own strengths, but then look outside of yourself to saying, what does the team need? And we've got a phrase for it that we, we teach teams all the time. It's called the enterprise commitment. In a team or group environment, I will put the interest of the enterprise ahead of my own. And that's how folks really start to develop that synergist style. And that's what lets us get over those divides between visionaries, operators, and processors. It's fascinating. Yeah. Well, th God, there's, there's so much in that. And what it makes me think of is really a lot of the culture work that we do, to use your language, is equipping, whether you're a visionary, an operator, or a processor, is equipping you with the skills to become also a synergist, right? Because everybody has to be self-aware. Everyone has to learn to communicate. And as part of that, if an organization hasn't gotten clarity of their purpose and isn't truly anchored on not just values that are on a wall, but they've operationalized them, the leader of the team, the formal people leader, needs to keep bringing people back to that when, when debates happen, differences of opinion, conflict. It's we need to have something to help us rise above it. Remember, we're all working towards this. 
So let's then talk about the feasibility of whatever it is we're talking about, of what's going to help us do that better, more efficiently, more effectively, whatever that might look like. It said so well. So the goal is not for everyone to become a synergist, but the goal is to be, if I'm an operator, I want to become a synergistic operator. And by doing that, I move away from my operatorness owning me. Tell me what to do and stay out of my way. That maverick mentality. I'm, and I move toward, I know how to get things done. I recognize my role in this team is to help get things into action, to find the right things that we need to execute on, and then to go out and make that happen. And then bring that feedback to the team for us to operationalize that and, and standardize it. And visionaries, they move from being these kind of arsonistic, you know, if I'm feeling a little bored, I'm lighting things on fire to see what burns. They'll walk around the office and have five conversations with five people going five different directions. And there's no conflict internally. But for everyone else, there's just chaos because they're all running in different directions of what do we do? That helps a visionary to recognize, okay, not every meeting is a blue sky session. Not every solution is a new idea. And for processors, they're not exempt either. Left to their own devices, they can become highly bureaucratic. And so they recognize, hey, my job is not to consume everything and control everything. My job is to partner with these folks, create room for us to experiment with new visions and new ideas, to create room to try things before we really systematize them, and then take what we've learned from that and build a beautiful system out of that. I love all of that. My brain always connects dots. And you know what I'm as I'm listening to this, the thing that comes to mind is looking at what is the work that actually has to be done or looking at the meeting level. So one, one of the tools that we use that's not dissimilar to this, but it's Pat Lencioni's newest six types of working genius. And so as I'm listening to that, it's like, okay, so you've got the three phases of work. You've got the ideation, you've got the activation, you've got the implementation. And what happens is, you know, people go from ideation to implementation and there's not that activation. And so as I'm listening to you, I'm like, okay, well, visionaries are in the ideation of wonder and invention. But but then it has to pass off to the activation of discernment. Like, can we actually decide what what's viable? And so let's say that my genius is invention and my other genius is also galvanized. Well, I'm just going to rally people around my idea, but it's never gone through discernment. And so one of the things that I love that Pat will talk about, and we've done this, we'll map it out with teams. And I just did this with a executive team and it was fascinating because they were having their quarterly offsite. We did the working genius with them. And what they looked at is which parts of this offsite are really like in that visionary or in that WI. And they actually mapped it on the agenda and said, okay, we need you to speak up here. And you need to recognize you're going to be frustrated here. Don't tune out. Don't check out. Don't start going on your phone. And so Pat will tell a great story about how, because he's an ideation discernment, I think, guy or something. I can't remember which his are, but they'll be in a meeting and they're like, Pat, we're done ideating. We're okay. So like, leave your eye at the door. This is the part of you we need right now. So anyway, it just makes me think with this, it's similar, but it's like, okay, can we recognize like in a meeting, can we even use that language? Like, this is where we need processors to, like, we need you right now. Or no, we need processors set aside. Don't poo-poo ideas. We're in brainstorming mode. We need you to elevate your visionariness or whatever it might be. I love working genius at the ground level. What tends to be missing uh, from the model is the processors. When you go through the six, there's really two that are visionaries, two that are synergists, and two that are operators. But what's, what comes after, because there's vision, there's activation, there's implementation, what processors do is actually come in a fourth stage to say what worked and what didn't, and how can we reproduce that again and again and again? 
that's not always appropriate, actually, which is, uh, I think, why it's missing from the working genius model is that that step isn't always necessary. That P is something that doesn't necessarily lend itself to getting something implemented for the first time. It's what we do after we've implemented it for the first time. And now we've got nine things that we've implemented for the first time. And we have to decide, are we keeping some of these? And if we are, how do we tame the beast? Because it's all over the place right now. For sure. I love your perspective on it. One of the take homes that I think about here is just that we have to recognize that not everybody is wired like us and that if someone's frustrating us, it's an opportunity to lean in of like, why are they frustrating? It's not because they're bad. A lot of times it's because their strength is different than mine and we're bumping up against one another. It doesn't mean one's better. They're just different. And, and so I, I love your approach of we all have to strengthen that synergist part of us. I, I love this conversation. I could go on forever, but I want to shift gears slightly in looking at, so from a leadership standpoint, so speaking of not everyone's wired like us and understanding ourselves and understanding our, our styles, one of the things that I am keenly aware of, and I'm assuming you are as well in the work you do, is that there's a common human element to all of us where we make meaning from our experiences through the stories we tell ourselves. And a lot of times those stories are very self-limiting. We've created a narrative of like, visionary, I have to keep going. Or I don't have value or operator. My value comes from what I accomplish, right? So we have these narratives that have helped us be successful, but they, they hit their limit and they come at a, a breaking point. But I don't care if someone's a CEO of a billion dollar publicly traded company or a startup, that we all get in our own way. So I want to turn the tables on you, Scott, and ask you, what is a self-limiting story that you still tell yourself sometimes? And then when it shows up, how do you move beyond it so that you can still show up as a leader and have a positive impact around you? So interesting take for me is I am a visionary processor by wiring. That's just how I'm wired. All the conflict between visionaries and processors exists in my heart. <laughs> so, oh, nice. You're having this internal battle right now. But that's not the problem. I spent the first uh, eight, nine years of my career as an operator. I teamed up with a very, very strong visionary. And I fell into that pattern because my dad is a very strong visionary. And we did a lot of work together when I was a kid. And so I went out, worked with a very strong visionary. And in my early 20s, I would have said I was an operator. And it's my lowest score, actually. And so first nine years of my career are you are what you accomplished. You just said it. Like, I am what I get done. And by wiring, I'm really, really bad at that. And so I spent an enormous amount of energy to the extent that in my mid-20s, my blood pressure was in the 150s. And I wasn't really stressed in the sense that I wasn't worried about anything, but I was so engaged in activities that didn't align with who I was or how I was made. And so for me, there's just this ongoing unpacking of you don't have to be an operator. Like that, that's not even who you are. You don't have to pride yourself on that. And I was just meeting with my coach yesterday and we do a lot of goal setting. And I found that even the way that I was doing goal setting was driving me back toward being an operator. It was sucking the life out of the goals for me. I wasn't enjoying the process at all. And so we set a goal to not set goals, basically. <laughs> and so it. my goal is to pick one opportunity each day and go after it and have fun with it. And that will leave time to do the other stuff that I have to do. But I've got to retrain myself to actually realign with how I'm made and who I am. I love that. So for you, it sounds like you're like 
hey, self, you're not an operator or you don't have to be an operator or, you know, yeah, whatever we've conditioned ourselves of who we're supposed to be or who we think we are of, no, this is who you are and who you are is okay. Yeah. So if you're looking at it and you're kind of like, I don't know what style I am, like how you show up at work is often in line with your natural style, but not always. And so sometimes what will happen is you show up a certain way at work. People expect you to show up that way at work. And it's just a cycle that reinforces. And so just because you show up a certain way at work, you know, if you're thinking which one of those, it's whichever one your heart resonates with, not the one that you've given yourself to in the near term, if those are different. You know, that is such an important point. I regularly will tell my coaching clients, we train people how to treat us. And so if we have shown up with like, in your case, you know, yep, I'm the person, I will get stuff done. I don't say no. You train people that they'll keep coming to you for that. And until you retrain yourself and then set healthy boundaries with other people and start to whether it's say no or go to this person or I'm going to start delegating or whatnot, you can retrain people how to treat you. But then you got to recognize that you've set up other people to interact with you in a certain way by how you've been showing up. 100%. Love that. So are you ready for some quick questions? Let's do it. Okay. Fill in the blank. Living authentically is? Being present right here, right now. Absolutely. When the world is presenting an opening, but you don't feel like showing up as a leader, what do you do? So two parts to that. One is you do it. Two is the definition of leadership for me has to include all four styles. So the way that we describe it is any act that helps any group of two or more people achieve their shared goals, which means that leadership could be being the one to go in and just get the job done. It doesn't look like leadership, can look like followership, and usually does. Leadership, more often than not, looks like what most people would dub followership. And so I would say, for me, it's that is what it means to, to live out the enterprise commitment, is to do it. What does that mean for everyone is, I would say that's happening way more often in our lives than most people would recognize. Oh, 100%. We always say that leadership is a behavior set of behaviors. It's not a title or role. And that kind of the whole premise behind this podcast and the work that we do is that everybody has an opportunity in their professional and personal life to show up as a leader. And we define that as it's, it's being our authentic self. And in doing so, we're looking for ways to maximize our positive impact around us and call others to greatness. So sometimes jumping in and getting it done or helping somebody out, that is leadership. So I love that. What's something people would be surprised to know about you? I don't have a good answer for this, except that most people who know me would peg me as an operator. And uh, that's not it. The secret's out, people. <laughs> okay, what's your favorite go-to movie? Gotta be Interstellar. Nice. How about your go-to song? That changes. What is it right now? I listen to a lot of instrumental stuff. And because I listen to albums and not songs, I don't know the, the names of any of the songs. <laughs> <laughs> something instrumental. It's all good. All right. What's something, and I say something lightly, it doesn't have to be a thing. What's something you can't live without? My wife. Oh, that'll make her so happy. I'll add a little bit to the wife comment. It's true under all circumstances, but she has COVID and so do my three children. And so I've been like Mr. Momming it and trying to work. And it's like, I'm hopeless. <laughs> like, I'm just, I'm hopeless at home. <laughs> so you're going to, you're going to give her a crown and a gift certificate to a spa and stuff when she recovers. Yes. <laughs> so she's absolutely amazing. Oh, well, I hope they all feel better. Oh, that's, that's rough. That's rough. Okay. So what's something in your ordinary daily life that makes your heart happy? 
my youngest daughter, she's eight months old and uh, her name's Isabel. We adopted her this, this past summer and she has the world's most amazing smile and I get to see it every day and it just lights, it lights my candle. Oh, I love that. I love that. And last but not least, what are you grateful for right now? She's right there at the top. We've been fighting for and contending for her for about four years and uh, take this podcast a very different direction. We lost a daughter uh, right before that. So it's been something that we've really been in the, the wait for for an extended period of time. And she's in no way, shape or form a replacement, but she has a promise fulfilled. And it's really special to have have her. I'm so sorry for your loss. And yeah, I have friends who lost children and I just can't even imagine. That. So to wrap this up, Scott, and I've just, I could talk to you forever. Like this is, there's so much synergy in our work and I love this. But if you could challenge leaders everywhere to practice this one behavior that would create more human workplaces and equip everybody to show up as a leader, what would that be? I think it would be to know your style and look for every opportunity to bring that to the benefit of your team members. Mic drop. I'm Rosie Ward, and this is Show Up as a Leader. To learn more, head over to peopleforwardnetwork.com and of course, hit that follow button.